Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hewn. Our mission is to help you gain your freedom from the exhausting, never-ending corporate rat race. Because time is our most valuable asset. And life's just too short to do work we hate. Thanks for slowing down. All right, welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast, everyone. I'm excited to have a conversation with my guest today, Emily Burnett. She's a fellow entrepreneur, a fellow personal finance enthusiast, and uh, she's had an interesting career. She she had, was telling me actually before we hit record that in her 20s, she felt like she was underemployed. And then as she got into her 30s, she made a career pivot, um, transitioning into web development, and that's kind of led to to where she is today. And really the cool thing about Emily's journey to this point is she's always been um, kind of an explorer is the way you've described it to me, Emily. You've, you've been exploring and trying to figure out what's the right fit for you rather than just settling into something and just sticking it out like so many people do. You bet. So the first thing I want to jump in and, and talk a, a little bit about is you've described your life in terms of kind of a roller coaster, like a, <laughs> a corporate roller coaster, because you told me like you, you were in corporate um, and you felt like it wasn't so bad. And then it got to a point where it was soul sucking. And then you got to a point after that where it wasn't so bad again and you decided to go back. So um, I'm curious if you can just kind of describe that a little bit, because obviously that's that's one of the big pressing issues here on the Affordable Freedom podcast is trying to gain independence from from the corporate world. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, roller coaster is definitely one way to to, to put it, because I have been in and out of jobs and corporate jobs. And, you know, there were definitely parts of corporate that I enjoyed. It actually was kind of nice to have somebody else occupying my time for 40 to 55, 60 hours a week and not be responsible for using that time in a way that was meaningful to me. And I loved coworkers. I loved a lot of the social dynamics of work. But there would always come a point where I had a zillion ideas about what we could be doing, how we could be working together better, but I was not always in a position to influence what we did. And that was usually the marker for kind of the warning sign, like, it's about time to make a change because that personal autonomy and personal freedom to act on my ideas it, to improve something was so important to me. So I've actually, I've left corporate twice um, before, before I went into web development and you know, that whole pivot was meant to put me in a space where I'd have a lot of different opportunities for career growth and types of work. And it's been one of the best decisions I made. Um, before that, I had certainly left jobs as we all do in our twenties. And then in my thirties, uh, I worked at two different companies and I left that first one in this like blaze of glory, like I'm going out on my own. And, um, I, I jumped too soon. But that taste of freedom and autonomy was really, really good for me 
it kind of showed me like, are you really ready to handle the responsibility of visioning and visioning and um, bringing something into the world and um, ran out of money as one does. And this was uh, shortly after my own debt payoff journey had ended. And so I was feeling so free. Um, I ended up back in corporate at a job that was such a good fit for a long time. I was able to really function as an entrepreneur and I felt like I had that personal autonomy I'd been looking for. And then the day came when it just wasn't any longer. And so that is that is when I made the decision to go all in on what I was at that time building. And that was also one of the best decisions I've made, even if it has led to some unexpected results. So I love the the balance take that you have on this whole issue of, do we work in corporate? Do we not work in corporate? And mm-hmm. as you know, I mean, you've seen my LinkedIn posts and I've been pretty vocal about my disdain for corporate America, but like it's it's been an evolution for me too, you know, like I'm not as angry and resentful at corporate America as I was in the past. I view it now as like, it was great. It was a great place for me to learn, to develop my skills, to make some money so that I had a good financial foundation. It's just, you get to Mm -hmm. a point where to like what you said, um, you feel like you're not being utilized to your full potential. You have these ideas and these things that you think can make an impact and nobody really listens. (laughs) <laughs> you know, which can be really frustrating. So I, I like that you have that that balance take on it. And then another thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how, you know, I mentioned how a big part of this show is helping people to gain independence from corporate mm-hmm. America. And I just had this conversation actually in the, the last episode that I recorded, but we were talking about how um, we have to like make the distinction between um, the security of, of corporate America and dependency on it. Like you don't want to be dependent. You can be independent of corporate America and still work in corporate America, right? It doesn't mean you have to jump ship and do your own thing. So at this point in your career, Emily, you are an entrepreneur. What is it about this time that's caused you to stick with that? And do you think this is the last step for you? Do you think you'll be an entrepreneur for the rest of your career? Oh, that is the million dollar question. And I ask myself, a lot, actually. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions to think about and to to analyze and dissect because like you, I used to quite disdain corporate. And when I left again that second time, it was like, you know, good riddance, never coming back. To be honest, there might have been a little judgment of people who stayed in corporate and thought it was great. But I really... I feel like I've had a year and a half to process and kind of get humble a little bit. Um, and, and so I really have softened because like you, I think the biggest thing is um, whether you have a sense of personal autonomy and get to influence your world. And like I mentioned at that, that second corporate job I went back to in my mid-30s, I was actually really happy because I was being stretched. I was uh, 
parts of my potential that I had not done a great job of tapping into were being drawn out. And um, so I, I think that there is a possibility for sure for people to stay in corporate and still freely express their dreams, their potential, act on their potential, try to realize it and maximize it. And the short answer to your question, do I see myself as an entrepreneur for the rest of my life, is yes. The slightly longer answer to that question is that no matter what I'm doing, if at some point I'm at home raising kids, I will continue to be an entrepreneur. If I go back to a corporate job because I actually, in a lot of ways, thrive when I am working with other people toward a shared mission, um, I will continue to be an entrepreneur and and really develop my writing. I'm currently writing my second book, and I bet we'll probably talk about that. But I feel like my exploration journey has definitely taught me that I own my growth. and And as long as a corporate culture, a manager that can support that, and understand that, no, I I actually have no interest in a three-year plan because I've written my own and I will do great work while I'm here. Um, It might work. And so that's that's the complicated answer to your question. So let's shift gears a little bit and start talking about money. Yeah. Um, So I know you talked about how, you know, in the past that you would use debt to kind of get what everyone else had, which is something that I think a lot of people do. Um, so I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what that looked like for you. And then I think I'm, I'm even more curious to hear, cause I think this is different for each person is what do you think was the root of that? Like, why did you want to have what everyone else had? Oh, that is a, that's a fun question. Yeah. You know, for me in, in a lot of ways, my tastes were probably more modest than some. Um, but it was, it was a lot of lifestyle things. It was going out to eat with friends and not wanting to be the cheap one. If that's what my budget and my plan for spending actually should have been, or if that's what I actually wanted to do, it was a lot of just spending to fit in with the people I spent time with who would have loved me regardless. Uh, it looked like vacations with friends and family. It looked like um, more car, way more car than I should have afforded with debt. It looked like all the outdoor clothing that I liked, not all, but more than, again, I should have afforded at that stage of my life and given my debt and income situation. Um, so there were no outlandish boats. Uh, when I bought a house, it was actually after my financial transformation and it ended up being a, a really good decision, a, a blessing to me. And it didn't strap stress. It didn't strap me financially remotely. So it was a lot of just spending like everybody else was spending. And I think that's also the answer to why. I assumed that everybody else knew what they could afford and they could afford 
to spend like they were. And I just wanted to be part of that. I didn't want, there was a lot of personal shame about my debt situation and about living paycheck to paycheck. And so I didn't want to be the one to call attention to it by doing anything other than what everybody else was doing. And it's only in the past five to seven years that I've come to understand just how many people can't afford the way they're spending. But I didn't know that then. Yeah, that's such a good point. We look around and you see the person that's driving, you know, the Tesla or the BMW or whatever it is. And the person who has the 4,000 square foot home in the nice neighborhood and, and, you know, all that stuff. And you just think, well, they must be doing really well financially. And a lot of them aren't like they're, they're way overextending themselves. And, um, this brings up another great point about how you, and I know you mentioned this as well, is that, um, money is so important, but so so many people like don't talk about it or they kind of avoid those conversations. So like when you were in that position where you were taking on this debt, is money something that you were talking about and, and having conversations about? Oh, no. I try to avoid every conversation about money <laughs> because it felt like it would tap into <laughs> my, my shame. It would only make my shame worse. So I was being extremely careful and extremely limited about the conversations I would have about money or financial decisions. I did a lot of like, um, what would I do? Monthly chastising myself, resolving to be better. You know, I'll be better next month, but a lot was happening in my head and just within my own space. I really did try to avoid financial advice, especially from anybody who, again, I thought had it more together or knew that they had it more together than me, which wasn't, um, which in my mind was about everybody. And uh, I just wanted to make one quick point on the the spending and, you know, why I spent like I did and why I think others spend like they do. I think there's a lot of trying to outspend a life that you don't actually love, a life that you're not very happy in. And that's not to say you have to change everything about your life, but I think it starts by recognizing I mean, we talk about money is emotional, spending is emotional, but so many people want to fix their their money. They they're like, "Okay, I need to budget." And and where I'm at, especially after a year and a half of what I've been doing, is like, "Actually, let's talk about your life. Let's talk about your life so that you don't yeah. keep wanting to out try to outspend it because that will never work." But yeah, that's that's such a good point when you're intentional on how you're using your money, how you're allocating your money, as well as allocating your time. And if it's in line with the life that you actually want to live, not the life that you're trying to live to keep up with others or live up to some external expectation, it becomes a lot easier to make good financial decisions. And typically your bank accounts will thank you when, when you can have that mindset. So now you've done a lot of work as a, as a financial coach. Um, 
and it's it can be hard to get people to open up and have these conversations about money. So how have you found is a good way to get somebody to start talking about it a little more, talking about, you know, something that really is important and we need to be talking about? Yeah, the best way I know, especially for the the large segment of the population I'm trying to reach is to lead with my own story. And so my book title is Dear Fellow Spender. And the fellow word in there is probably the most important word of the title because it it lets the people who like me are feeling like they're the only one who's either must be bad with money, must be bad with math, is, you know, fated to this existence of paycheck to paycheck living. Um, it lets them know that if someone like me can do it, so can they. Um, and again, that's not everybody. There, there are people out there who are intrinsically frugal and that's not me. And, and I, I will qualify that actually by saying that I'm maybe not naturally frugal, but as I've gotten on purpose with my money and intentional with my money, I've become a lot more confident in my own spending decisions. So sometimes that might look frugal to somebody else, but I'm doing it because it's what I want or I'm not doing it because it's also what I want. And um, so again, yeah, the, the best way I have found to reach people is again, lead with uh, a relatable personal story that gives them permission to like burst their own shame bubble that they've got around them. Because as long as that shame bubble is there, all the financial advice in the world is going to just bounce off. Because I was that person. Yeah. And if somebody said, you should be budgeting, that just like bounced off and reinforced the, we'll call it like a, a force, a shield around me where I was like, no, 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 no. Don't talk to me about budgeting. I've tried it. It doesn't work or it doesn't work for someone like me. So that, that is, that's how I found. And that's honestly why I wrote the book and why I plan to do a lot more writing because again, this, particular, this large segment of the population, I can't tell you 95% of the people who hear my book title pause and like, I'm adding that to my Amazon cart. And this is like across demographics, socioeconomic, like my is people in their seventies are reading it. Like this intentional spending idea is interesting and getting benefit out of it. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm at in hopes of helping a lot more people care about about their money and their and their life, what they do with with their money. Yeah, I like. There's a couple things that you mentioned there that really resonate with me. One is the fellow part of your book, dear fellow spender, because um, I, I think I agree with you. I think that's the most effective way to actually help someone with their financial situation is to be on the same side of the table with them. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we are dealing with our money and all the emotions that come with that ourselves as well. And we can help others to do that. And I think, you know, me, I spent most of my career in the wealth management industry. 
And my industry is terrible at that. They like to say, hey, we have all the answers. We are the experts and we are going to tell you what to do. And not only does that not motivate people to want to open up, but it actually um, makes them fearful to actually ask for help. Totally. Which is which is really, really a bad thing. And then the other thing that you mentioned was... Um, you talked about like being frugal and being intentional. And I think a lot of the times people like one of the things I've been getting into a lot recently is minimalism and minimalism. People think that it's being cheap, but it's not, it's not being frugal. It's being intentional. And actually if there's something that is important to you and it's some, it's a place where it's worthwhile for you to allocate some of your money you might actually spend more. You might spend lavishly on that thing because it's important while avoiding all the stuff that is not important. And I, I know you talk about intentionality a lot. So um, can you just elaborate a little bit more on, on that point? And, and have you used that kind of concept in your own life as well? Oh, yeah. Yes, that, that is spot on in my experience that um, so much of the spending we do when we don't plan it care about it, proactively organize it, is, is just wasted spending because we don't actually enjoy it that much. So I found that I started spending well quite a bit more on things that really do matter to me, but that only worked when I looked at what really mattered to me. So before this kind of financial transformation, and, and again, it means even more now after a year and a half of traveling and really, really looking at what I'm building and how I am uniquely positioned to, to help and influence people to look at their own lives deeply, um, it really only, it only gets to be intentional when you know it is something that matters to you versus something that you're going to spend lavishly on because you think it's going to make you feel better. So there's a world of difference between spending to feel better and spending because you really enjoy something. And uh, so I have really seen that to be the case in my own life and, and also in the lives of those I have money conversations with. So I, I love your take, Emily, on fire. I know this is we're, we're switching topics here, but for those that are not familiar, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's gaining so much popularity right now. And I don't know if it's the best idea. Maybe for some people it is. But to me, it seems like pinching pennies and punishing yourself now so that you can retire early. It just, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I am so glad we're talking about this. Um, yeah. I have pretty strong opinions about this now. A year and a half ago, I didn't. Um, and when I say a year and a half ago, I'm referring to the time when I left corporate, went all in on building a financial coaching business. And as I've done that and traveled and talked to literally hundreds of people, I, I'm at a slightly more, I'm at a, a much more thoughtful place about things like the FIRE movement. And... The conclusion I've come to is our purpose in life should not be to do nothing. Like that's not a purpose. 
And that became really evident when I was talking with a couple who had fired themselves in, I think they were early 30s. And a couple of us were sitting around a table talking and I asked, so do you like to read? No. So what do you do with your time? Oh, we just kind of hang out with family, with friends. Uh, We dabble in a little bit of this. And that was such a wake-up conversation for me. It wasn't the first time I'd had rumblings of, of what I'm thinking about this now. But it just felt like such an aimless existence that they had, they'd gotten to the finish line. Sure. I don't know what their journey was like to get there, but I assume it did involve a lot of pinching pennies and probably, you know, living really cheap and avoiding putting off experiences to do what? To do nothing? That is not any, anything I want part of. Um, I contrasted that with like, I was at a Vietnamese restaurant, uh, over new years and they were busy. The, the food was great. And the, I think it was a family owned business. And one of our party had commented like, Oh, hopefully it's not too busy tomorrow. And the woman was like, we like working. Like they like their business. They like what they're doing. They like helping people. And to me, that is, you know, that's what fire misses is like, you can only travel so much. I think you can only hang out so much before you start to have this existential crisis of why am I here and what am I doing in this world? So yeah, if I understand the the financial independence part, I'm not so sold on the retire early part of that, unless you have a really great plan for how you plan to meaningfully spend your time. And, and that includes having responsibilities and constraints on your time and duties and obligations. Uh, so those, those are some of my thoughts. Yeah. I, I love how you talk about, um, that there, you can love your work. Mm-hmm. Like, Mm-hmm. Work doesn't have to be terrible. It doesn't have to be something that we escape from. And like when you have that mindset, um, you you could still subscribe to fire and say, I want to fi- you know, be financially independent so I can retire early. But to your point, then what? You know, and if you think about it, hey, there are a lot of if there are a lot of different joyful ways that you can earn an income you know, with low stress and actually have a reason to get up out of bed in the morning and do something. Well, then that that target, because you, you look at like the fire targets, they're like these absurdly high numbers that you re- really like you have to torture yourself in order to get to it. Like, why do that? Just shoot for financial flexibility and optionality. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I love that. Financial flexibility and optionality. I, I haven't heard that word before, but I really like it because it really is. That's what financial flexibility and a measure of financial freedom, which I would describe as you have a good relationship with your spending and your money, and you are able to afford many, all your, all your needs, most of your wants, if not, if not all, although I don't know if that's good for a person, but, um, but yeah, you, you, 
create options for yourself, but there's, there's a lot to be said for making money or being used, using your life in a, in a, in a non-aimless way, in a way that matters to you, a reason to get out of bed. Like you said, that's, that's pretty huge. And in a work from home, uh, day and age, I think that's really become apparent to, to people that they need that reason to get out of bed, to leave the house, to show up. Yeah. So speaking of having a purpose and having a reason to get out of bed every day, um, you're writing a new book right now. So I'm sure that gives you reason to want to do what you're doing every day. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the book, but first I'm interested in, in hearing how you've sort of made this transformation from considering yourself as a financial coach to, um, you went from, um, dear fellow spender to dear fellow dreamer. So almost you, you mentioned from a financial coach to more of a dreamer. Am I putting that correctly or am I butchering it? (laughs) Mostly correctly. No, that's, that is, that's good. And I'd be happy to elaborate. (laughs) Yes, please do, because I just did a terrible job of explaining it. So please elaborate. (laughs) So I wrote the book, Dear Fellow Spender. And to be really honest, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with this. In the coaching industry, in the online space, it's become a thing where people write books and, and the book is good and it's leverage for building like a coaching business or building out their program. And and my book was kind of, it served that purpose. You know, I was planning to use it and started to use it to build my, my financial coaching big business bigger. I also had started writing the book years earlier and figured I, I owed it to myself and to the book and to anybody who was going to read it to get it online and, and publish it. So I released the book and I thought, okay, that that's that. But for several months now, as I've introduced myself as a financial coach, it just has not sat right in my gut. And it's been kind of this wrestle because if I'm not a financial coach, what am I? I still care a lot about people's financial health and all the things we've talked about here today about, you know, bursting that like shame shield and being able to create options for themselves. Um, But if I'm not a financial coach, then what am I? And I've just written a book called Dear Fellow Spender. So, So again, what now? And I've realized the last part of my, so the subtitle of the book is using your money to get out of debt, build savings, and create a life you love. And that last part of the title sounds kind of trite and Uh, maybe it is, but that is what I've been thinking about for 18 months is so many of the conversations I've had with prospective clients about money. It is what we actually really do need to be talking about is their life. And I can, I can help you set up a budget, but you don't need a budget. You need more of like a life audit to realize why it even matters and that is the part where I really, really come alive. It's where I spend most of my time thinking and writing. And I actually 
would love to leave some of the minutia of money management to other financial coaches who are really, really passionate about like comparing these five budgeting apps and which one is best. Like I want the results for people. Um, but in order for anybody to get results, they have to get like activated. I was going to say fired up, but we did just talk about fire. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that, that would work too. But the, the conversations I have had with prospective clients, clients, and many hundreds of people as I've traveled and networked and talked with people about money, what they need is they need to get motivated about their life, about what they do with their time. And, and I feel like that is a really personal conversation and people receive it better when they're not actually face-to-face, perhaps a tiny, tiny bit defensive. Um, I'm just thinking about feedback I've had from the book where it's, um, it brings people into conversation with themselves. And that's the most important conversation they need to have about money and about their life satisfaction. And so the, the dear fellow dreamer is, is that book. It's like, yes, I, I can absolutely, um, help with your money. And that's really largely outlined in dear fellow spender, but let's talk about your life and what it is you're waiting to do and why. And, and this is not coming from somebody who, you know, is 10 years down the road and every one of my dreams has come, I come true and I'm sitting on, you know, millions of dollars and I'm, I have not a care in the world. This is me figuring out what this looks like for me. Um, again, I think corporate, corporate is a, is a really good hiding spot for dreamers. And I'm hoping to reach more of those dreamers that, uh, you know, stare out the window during meetings and think about the things they want to do. And, and I want this book, Dear Fellow Dreamer, to be able to shift them from being a dreamer into being a doer, and that's cyclical. Um, and if they need to get more intentional with their money in order to do that, I've also got Dear Fellow Spender to help them logistically with that. I love that because, you know, I talk about this all the time where money is not an objective, or at least it shouldn't be. Money is a tool and we use it to achieve the objective, which is living the happiest possible life we could live. Like that's what we all want, right? Without having to worry about money and be financially stressed. Like, you know, so, so I like how you're talking about life more than money, because once you know what you're trying to achieve, now that really boring stuff of looking at a spreadsheet and all the line by line items of your budget that can be really boring. Now you'll dive into that and you'll do that stuff. So, um, and I also like how you pointed out, Emily, about how like you're not sitting on this mountaintop saying, look at me, I did it. I'm going to show you the way like you're in it with mm-hmm. them. And like, I, th- I feel like that's if you're ever going to hire a coach or a mentor, somebody that's going to help you like. You want someone that's ahead of you, but not too far ahead of you. Someone that can like throw you, throw the rope and help you, you know, kind of up the mountain. You know what I'm saying? So uh, can you talk a little bit about what that relationship has been like between you and your clients as you're working through this together? Yeah. 
you know, one, one, it come, one instance comes immediately to mind as representative of what you just asked. And it was um, a, a, a woman who she wanted to get her finances in order. She wanted to start budgeting. She wanted to stop the credit card yo-yo cycle. And we met for months. And, and I'm a pretty gentle coach. So I don't, I don't push. Uh, again, especially because a lot of the people I have worked with are pretty skittish about financial advice. And I'm not giving them advice per se, but they're skittish about anything that might be perceived as judgment. So I, I actually feel like I'm in those conversations to help them take a compassionate look at their own financial situation and be more gentle with them than they are on themselves because they go in pretty hard on the, on themselves. Anyway, we met for months and, and things were moving along and I had, I, I'd, I'd pushed as much as I could and kind of let this particular issue drop that I'll tell you about. And then I brought it back and I said, I know you don't want to put all your spending on paper, but I think that's what we're missing here. And that's, that's, that's actually where I start with all my clients because it's a mirror moment. It is a looking in the mirror, not at what your bank says you spend on eating out or your credit card when it does kind of a retrospective analysis, but it's really important for you to see in a non-judgmental way what your current spending says about your life and your priorities. Non-judgmental. Anyway, she had avoided that. And when I said, okay, let, let's just, let's go there. And she was finally willing. She was shocked because that exercise indicated that if only she was proactive about her spending, she would have hundreds of dollars more per month to proactively plan, spend, enjoy than she thought and was currently experiencing. Anyway, I bring that up because it was only after we had that kind of conversation that she finally admitted to me, I hate my job. <laughs> Meanwhile, all that time she had talked as if she liked her job. It was busy, but she liked it. And it was just, it was a really great reminder to me again of what's behind most people's spending I put air quotes, you know, spending issues. It's, it's a dissatisfaction with a big part of their life. And sometimes you don't have control over that part of your life. But if, if you're miserable in a job, I say you have a lot of control over that. Um, I would say that in general, the experience with clients is, it is seeing them get excited about their life and then the money is just the currency and the place where they get to reflect that excitement about their life, that like renewed involvement with, okay, I'm going to do something about my, my hopes and dreams using my money. So it's a real, it's a real honor, honestly, to, as you know very well, to, to see that in people. It is. It really is. That's... That's fascinating what you just said there um, about how she always talked about she liked her job, you know, and it turns out 
she actually didn't. She was miserable. And it just makes me think how many people are out there that like convince themselves that they like their job, you know? Sure, there's all these things that bother me, but I'm going to convince myself that I love my job. And that's a real dangerous place. If you let that build up over time, those little things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you get to a point where like, you just have to get out without a plan. That actually happened to me. And I don't recommend that to anybody. Yeah, I think either. it's something you need to talk about openly and be honest with yourself. So it's really valuable to have someone like you that will have these non-judgmental and just open conversations with people. So I appreciate that very much, Emily. Um, so I want to wrap up, but uh, where can people find more information? We'll, we'll drop some links in the show notes um, where people can find information on your, your two books. Um, but where can people follow along with you if they want to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I am on LinkedIn. I um, am fairly active there, just under my personal name, Emily Burnett. And then I'm on Instagram and there it's at moso underscore money, M-O-S-O underscore money. And those are the two best places to follow along with me on kind of the, the daily basis. And there are invitations to, to get on the email list, which is where I will be sharing even more of kind of my personal journey. Because like you said, Brian, I, I am in this too. And, and what I hope to do with all of this, honestly, uh, is to like create a swelling motion. I, I have big plans because I don't just have big plans for me. I have big plans for anyone I can reach to come with me. You know, this is, is very much a, like, like I mentioned, there are a lot of dreamers hiding in corporate and there are honestly dreamers hiding in entrepreneurship. There are dreamers in hiding all around us. And what I hope to do with what I am going to be sharing in a much bigger way this year is, is create that, that movement of dreamers becoming doers and getting excited about their, their money and their one and only life and living it intentionally by being intentional with their money. All right, great. Well, thank you again, Emily, for coming on. I enjoyed the conversation and I hope the listeners do as well. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a moment, check out my website at reflectivewealth.com. Everything you need to know about my business is there. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my career, transparency and accountability are critical to a healthy financial services industry. Thanks and see you next time.